Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon and welcome again to another session of Adelaide Writers' Week. We meet here on the traditional floodplains of the Ghana people to whom we pay our respect and thanks for their custodianship. My name's Tom Wright. It's my privilege and pleasure to host this session today talking about the Boys Club. The Boys Club in the sense of the AFL and maybe hopefully by extension the Boys Club as a description of the nation we live in. Joining me on stage, Michael Warner. Michael's a writer for the Herald Sun, the recipient of the 2018 Alf Brown Award, Australian Football Media Association Outstanding Achievement Award, multiple quills, Australian Sports Commission Award for his coverage of the Essendon Doping Saga, the West Coast Illicit Drugs Saga, the Melbourne Tanking Saga. You should be writing Icelandic <laughs> epics there, um, Michael. Um, heard on 3OW Radio, probably seen on Talking Footy over the years, certainly one of the most independent-minded observers of our national native code. This book is an extraordinary um, revelation, Michael, because of your, you've dared to step outside the bounds and actually tell the truth. Uh, it's a perilous thing to do at any time, but particularly in a very guarded Australia. Um, if you forgive me saying so, what you've just interpreting the boys' club, it's a description of the way in which the AFL is a closed shop. Uh, it's a protected species. It's not subject to scrutiny, and in some cases, it's uh, subject to some fairly reprehensible practices. But it was your living as well. What kind of insanity drove you to try and <laughs> blow the lid off the clothes shop of the AFL, given that you depend on it? Um, were you mad? Uh, thanks for having me, first of all, Tom. Uh, was I mad? Um, as a newspaper journalist, you, you sort of only get 500 to 1,000 words a day to to tell the story that you, you want to get across. And uh, it dawned on me that really what was required here was a book that tied this 30-year pattern of behaviour together so that everyone could see what it was that I've been banging on about in the Herald Sun and the, the News Corp papers around the country for the last 15 years covering AFL. But I felt, uh, and Louise Adler, who's my publisher, agreed that this needed to be something pulled together in a book. So uh, I juggled writing this book with my day-to-day -day job. It took me three years to write it, and most people tell me that they read it in three days, which I find uh, amusing. But, uh, I, yeah, I guess you say, why did I write it? I, I feel passionately about the fact that the AFL, it's a great game, but I feel that the administration of the game is in desperate need of reform. It's been unaccountable for close to three decades now, hasn't had an independent review for that period of time. And I try to tell the story through the prism of all the integrity scandals that you'd all be familiar with. You mentioned the Essendon drug saga, which is the, the big daddy of them all, but um, starting way back in the Carlton salary cap days, the West Coast Eagles, illicit drugs crisis, the Melbourne tanking affair, Talia Brothers. I mean, they're, they're pretty well equipped with crisis, the AFL, because they have one every couple of months. But I tell it through that prism um, and try to paint a picture of, of this very powerful, unaccountable organisation. Yes, and as I'm sure you'll feel um, in the audience, the conversation starts off being about the AFL, but feels like it extrapolates out into becoming something even more familiar about our broader society. Um, 
you, Mick, you paint a picture of an organisation which is not accountable to anyone. It has charity-free status, but unlike most charity-free organisations in our country, um, it's not subject to any independent scrutiny or analysis whatsoever. How do we arrive at this extraordinary state of affairs where you've got this kind of special organisation which is a law unto itself? Yeah, that's, that's at the heart of what I... I'm concerned about with the way that it, it's able to govern itself in integrity investigations. It is judge, jury, executioner. It can come up with an outcome that it chooses. As you mentioned, it doesn't pay tax. Um, it's before COVID hired or had employed as many staff, 800, almost 800. That's almost as many as there are players in the AFL. Um, it became a bureaucracy. Um, now, I don't have an issue with them not paying tax, but I say in exchange for the use of publicly funded stadia, such as the one over the road here, or the MCG, or the GABA, um, there should be some accountability that comes with that tax-free status and the way that it's able to uh, conduct its own affairs, the salaries that it pays itself. In his final year in charge of the AFL, Andrew Demetriou paid himself $3.8 million. Uh, I imagine the highest paid player that year would have been on around a million dollars. That's fine um, if that's the way they want to conduct their business, but as I say, there is a tax-free status involved there. Well, and they've got, as an organisation, a very well-remunerated organisation through the media rights, they've got their hands in our purses and wallets as well, don't they, through many a taxpayer-funded initiative, not just the fact that they don't pay, but they're also getting paid to present the product. As you say, that's all fine and large, but there seems to be almost a two-speed economy operating within this little microcosm of Australia. Um, at the top, you eloquently describe it as being like laissez-faire 19th century capitalism. Anything goes, they can pay themselves what they want, there's no scrutiny, it's pretty much an open slather. Whereas at club level, at what we actually see on the field and what is actually delivered as a product, so to speak, it's like early 20th century dictated socialist economy. You can barely do anything. There's a, a draft, there's a salary cap, there's a fixture, everything's highly fixed. That same degree of control doesn't happen at the top. And so the individuals who are part of the management structure have one set of rules, but they don't apply it in their own organisation. Uh, how did that state of affairs emerge? Well, this is a story that started in the early 1980s when the VFL, the Victorian Football League, was probably the biggest uh, state body. A lot of the great South Australian players or West Australian players, as you would all know, would go uh, to, to, to Melbourne to play in the VFL. And there was a bit of a race on nationally to have a national competition. The VFL, which ultimately became the AFL, wasn't necessarily the body that was going to become the national um, ruling body of Australian rules well, football. Well, we have long memories of the NFL and what happened to exactly. it. Exactly. But what the Victorians did to That's right. <laughs> and uh, I suppose a national organisation. Victoria did ultimately yeah. win that race and created the AFL and you had the West Coast Eagles and the Brisbane Bears became a national competition. And as a result of that, they did need an overarching administrative body to oversee it. And the model, essentially, that they came up with, I, I agree with. It's a good model in terms of how to govern the game. You have a, a commission that sits above an executive... Um, and then controls the day-to-day -day operations of the club. But what happened over a course of probably 25 to 30 years, almost through osmosis, it morphed into something that I think those founding fathers didn't 
anticipate, and that is that the, um, the power base at AFL House, as you say, to the detriment of the clubs, by rights, the AFL Commission serves at the pleasure of the clubs, but the clubs have forgotten that. And I think the whole competition seems to have forgotten, and the power really morphed to head office. But not only that, the AFL Commission, which was the board of directors effectively, um, that sat above the executive over a period of time, it also ceded its power to the AFL executive, which is based at AFL House in, in Melbourne. Obviously, Andrew Demetriou, who you would all be familiar with, was the one who really supercharged this process. A very formidable business person uh, who you'd have to give some credit to in terms of turning the, um, the financial might of the competition around. Uh, but it's in this executive where they also, in my view, ran into problems policing their own integrity investigations. And that was really the, f the thing that inspired me to write this book, is the ongoing injustices, the, the poor treatment of people, the lack of transparency and accountability in this organisation. Well, give us some illustrations of this. What, what's an example of where the lack of scrutiny and the lack of answerability manifests itself? Because uh, we can get to the question of why we don't hear about certain things a bit later, but what's, what's an illustration to your mind of, um, of this phenomenon? Well, the great sadness for me is that this boys club that I refer to isn't actually just the suits at AFL House. It's the whole system that is, includes, sadly, some journalists, player agents, often lawyers. So it's this whole network and a web of connections um, mainly a Melbourne-based situation where you've got 10 of the 18 AFL clubs uh, situated in Victoria, one at Geelong and nine in, in Melbourne. So that's where the real power base of this organisation resides. And funnily enough, interestingly enough, the majority of the commissioners that sit above this executive now all reside interstate as well, which I say is probably by design. Um, designed to do what? Well, designed to allow the executive to have full control over what goes on, uh, which I don't think is the role of a board of directors. The way that it's currently working, I think there's far too much power at the executive and that the commission needs to reassert its authority over the executive. And the only way this can happen is, uh, and I, apart from belting the AFL in this book, I do set out some... Uh, passed to reform, having spoken to a number of people in, involved in the game, ex-presidents, etc., that um, an independent review is something that the AFL urgently requires, yeah. which can look at this um, governance structure. And I don't think the fix is that severe, but the way it currently operates is unacceptable in my view. OK, so let's just go to a specific example. Let's take something like on, an on-field matter such as the... This to, just to, as a means of illustrating it, such as the Talia brothers case, which took place a few years ago. Just talk us through a little bit about what this particular incident was, but more appositely, how the AFL chose to handle it as an illustration of it. Well, this is a, a story which, uh, if there's any Adelaide Crow supporters here, and I'm sure there would be, you would remember the 2015 elimination final uh, where... Adelaide beat the Western Bulldogs by your team, I believe, Tom, by seven points. Uh, and after the game, there were allegations which the Western Bulldogs took to the AFL that some inside information had been passed on 
uh, from Michael Talia, who was uh, an emergency. From, from Daniel to... From Michael to Daniel, who was playing yeah. for, the, yeah. for the Adelaide Crows. Um, the Western Bulldogs maintained that they had some independent collaboration of this, went to the AFL. There was a 63-day integrity unit investigation, uh, and part of that uncovered that was a, a member of the Adelaide Crows team had actually rung the Western Bulldogs coach and, and told him um, that he believed that they'd used inside information in the game. Now, at the end of this inquiry, the AFL uh, concluded that it was a practical joke gone wrong. Uh, now, none of the people involved, um, as far as I can tell, believed it was a practical joke, but the, the reason I... You bring that up is because when you are judge, jury, executioner, you can really come up with whatever outcome you want in an integrity investigation. Now that particular uh, issue was, you know, minor compared to the Essendon drug saga, where you actually had the yeah. AFL actively seeking to uh, intervene in, in an anti-doping investigation. But it, but it, it shows yeah, yeah your, 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 your key point because you know potentially a final was compromised. They did feel like there was independent evidence that might have been brought to bear. That's not really, as you say, it might just be a minor incident. But um, the AFL's recourse was to bullying and spin as opposed to trying to find a just outcome. And so this sense that every, every um, controversy that ever emerges in the game, whether it be on field or off, needs to be spun first. And if the result's not something that the boys' club like, they're quite happy to, well, I think the word you use is find a patsy, Mm. is that there's nearly always, at some point, someone who's going to be thrown under the bus. And by definition, they're not part of the boys' club. So we'll get to analysing who the boys' club is. So I was just going to say on that, the so reason for that is that the commercial interest of the AFL always comes before integrity. So when they look at an issue, they'll work backwards and say, well, what's the best outcome for our game? And you can understand why the AFL would do that um, when they're allowed to do that. And I think it's up to governments and regulators and football fans to call it out, journalists, which sadly too often are part of the problem in the selling an AFL story yeah. uh, to the media so that the, the, the public is sort of given a narrative that they believe. Yeah. Let's, we're, we're only a third of the way through, but we're almost getting to the next side immediately because it sounds like what you're calling for in political terms is that we need a, a properly funded ICAC <laughs> um, is that any organisation, whether it be the police force, the armed forces, any organisation that's allowed to scrutinise and judge itself will always end up, uh, in spite of any best endeavours, will end up being co corrupting itself. It feels like process is corrupted here, isn't it? Um, the flow of money is also hard to follow, as you say. We, we, we know sort of how much a salary cap is, but actually how the AFL spends the, the money, that's the, the largesse that started rolling in from the television rights was quite extraordinary. Tell us a little bit about the kind of uh, excesses that uh, AFL House indulged in at the peak of this, uh, the business class flights and so on. Well, the rivers of gold really were flowing into AFL House. You think about the TV rights money, which grew in, in, in the current TV deal. It's around $2.5 billion deal. So there's a lot, of, a lot of money there. Obviously, they have to fund you know, the majority of the game. The clubs also bring in revenues. But um, in terms of Australian sport, it's, it's by far the richest. Um, and on that scoreboard, they do a magnificent job, the AFL. You can't question yeah. the professionalism yeah. of the game. It's a great product to watch. One in 25 Australians are a paid-up member of an AFL club. 
uh, many more would attend games. They yeah. know that. They feed off that power of the product. Yeah, political parties would die for that degree of engagement. Yeah, they would. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I say the other measuring stick is just as important. That's how you treat people and how accountable you are and your transparency. And on that scoreboard, I say they're about 15 goals down. Yeah. The, um, you mentioned money. Money obviously talks. Let's just talk about gambling because uh, it's one of the themes that comes through the boys' club a great deal is the extent to which gambling is an ethos, not just a source of money. Andrew Demetrio is himself an a inveterate punter, punter in life, but an actual punter on the horses and so on. Gambling feels like it's integral and in the bloodstream of these boys and the boys' club, but they're also to a certain extent addicted to the money that comes from gambling. Can we talk about how in the space of what feels like only sort of 10 to 15 years it went from being a minor issue to being almost the live stream of a, a code. What do you, what's gambling done to this game? Well, it's not just the AFL, though, to no. be fair. The gam sports betting and um, the, the lucrative licensing around that has sort of infiltrated a lot of the sports, and it's very sad when you have kids sort of saying, Dad, is Mum, isn't it great that we're $1.08 this weekend? It means we're going to win. But um, that is not, to be fair, an, an AFL-specific Issue. One of the, the issues, though, you, you mentioned gambling with the AFL, which I say exposes the hypocrisy of this organisation, is that they have been very strong on encouraging their clubs to get out of poker machines. Yeah. Um, when at the same time they're taking tens of millions of dollars in sports betting revenue, as Bruce Matheson, the poker machine king, says in my book, um, that's fine if they want to ban all sorts of types of betting, obviously. Um, but he says in the terms of keeping the pokies and, uh, sorry, getting rid of the pokies and keeping the sports burning, it's like saying gin's in but whiskey's out. It's all alcohol in the end. So that's another area where obviously they need um, to get themselves off the teat, if you like, but it's more of a national problem. I think that's where probably government regulation comes in, a bit like it did with alcohol advertising or tobacco. But you can understand the cynicism, can't you, when uh, Mr Demetrio leaves um, his position at AFL House and walks into the board of Crown Resorts and was on the board of concomitant gambling, you know, online gambling organisations at the same time. Um, tell us about Mr Demetrio's sort of uh, post-AFL career, as it were, at Crown Resorts. How, how did that play out for him? Yeah, if any of you are familiar with the, the spectacular downfall of Crown Resorts and, and Crown Casino, Andrew Demetrio went on to the board of Crown immediately after leaving the AFL and I thought that the way that he conducted himself in the inquiry where he took his notes in and at one stage denied that he was using notes but then conceded that he was, was sort of the way that Andrew Demetriou had operated, only this time he ran into a, a New South Wales regulator who wasn't going to cop it and called it out. And uh, it was humiliating for him. It was humiliating for Crown Casino. And at Crown Casino, like the AFL, this all comes down to governance. And Crown, like the AFL, felt as though it could behave any way it wanted. And it could for a long time because of regulators and governments and journalists and uh, the whole industry allowed them to do it. Um, and so I think he probably would have been quite surprised when, uh, as the rest of the Crown Board were, when they were smashed in that inquiry. The surprise in some ways was that Mr Demetrio was on the board in the first place. It just revealed... <laughs> it, it feels uncannily similar to... Uh, 
maybe a certain former defence minister ending up on the board of a submarine tendering mm. firm. It's like we, we're, we're sort of familiar with the form, aren't we, in a way. Um, we've, I've put the cart before the horse here to a certain extent. Provide us with a bit of a portrait of the kind of man Andrew Dimitriou is, where he came from, what his background was, because he's not what you might expect to be the kind of one of the key figures in a boys' club like this. No, he wasn't. He, um, he came from uh, Pascoe Vale, Coburg in Melbourne's northern suburbs and look there's no doubting his uh, his abilities uh, as an executive one club president said to me he'd never known a visceral negotiator better that he could walk into a room full of government authorities and walk out you know with 50 to 100 million dollars of public money he, he, he was incredible in the, in the way that he was able to supercharge the AFL economy but he was also a very fierce it didn't take kindly to criticism uh, he ruled with an iron fist, and Gillan McLaughlin, who replaced him, really, I, f I felt, was his 2IC right through that period. He's less confrontational as a, mm. as a leader, but um, sort of, I think, learnt the benefits of the power that comes with being the AFL CEO. Well, that's one of the best things about the book, is it's, like it's a study in the way power manifests itself and works. You've got this these two protagonists, you've got Andrew Demetrio and his successor, Gillan McLaughlin, both of whom wield similar power and think very, are very protective of their organisation, rely upon insiders and outsiders and so on. But, you know, one is this Cypriot migrant who's learnt through, you know, through his fists and fighting through the hus on the streets, so to speak. And he hands over his protégé as a product of St Peter's. He comes from, he comes from the McLaughlin family, straight out of Rosebank up there at Mount Pleasant. You know, like, they couldn't have come from more different backgrounds. But the one thing that they both share is an innate ability to understand how to make the boys' club work for them. And it is an extraordinary club. How do you get into it? <laughs> Invites only, I think. It um, is, but look, there really is an amazing web of connections going right through uh, the people that sort of control the game. They sit on each other's boards. Um, snouts in the trough, you know, when, when trouble comes, they look after each other. Um, as I say, it, it's not just the suits, it's, it's um, player agents, it's journalists, broadcasters. Um, some don't even know they're in the boys' club. I think most probably do, to be honest, and they know that um, it's not 100% healthy, what goes on. But there's another phenomenon here, which is because it's sport, uh, I often wonder these commissioners that sit around AFL House, if, they, if it wasn't Australian rules football, would they allow their executives, would they turn a blind eye to the sort of conduct yeah. that I talk about in the book? And I don't think they would, but maybe because it's sport, they don't consider it to be as serious or as... Um, the, the same as corporate Australia, but when it comes to hundreds of millions of dollars and in policing integrity and accountability, it is very much the same. In fact, the AFL likes to see itself as a corporation, like a BHP, or that's the way it likes to measure itself with its KPIs. Yet, the, pe the people that sit around this board table have tolerated this behaviour for 25 years. Um, well, tolerated and in some cases celebrated. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm intrigued as well by 
the fact that it's not just shared interest, it's not just a group of largely men who find themselves with a shared interest and so protect each other. You know, that's sort of what I was talking about before, the sort of 19th century capitalist model where whatever goes, goes. There's something more and something deeper at work here is that it's an almost a multi-intergenerational, multifaceted um, re um, assertion of privilege. I, I took a note of some of the names of some of the key personalities that keep cropping up in your book, all of which are men. Luke Ball from the Players Association, Ben Buckley, an executive, I, I won't give all their CVs, Andy Gowers, Andrew Dillon, major figure, Dan Richardson, Paul Connors, Tom Proctoro, uh, Joe Watson, Craig Kelly, Simon Lethleen, Shane Healy, for that matter, the, the gaming minister, Rob Hulls. All of these men in different facets, all of whom are scratching each other's back. What does everyone on that list have in common? You tell me. They all went to the same school and all played for the same amateur football team. Um, and so you talk about the fact that you can go to a game of old Zavarians and, you know, we have equivalent but slightly less high-powered ammo competition here as well, but you can almost see more power nexus work being done around the stands of an amateurs game in Melbourne than you can see in some boardrooms, can't you? Now this, so clearly, in spite of all of the protestations of being an egalitarian society, at least as far as the AFL's concerned, who you went to school with still matters a great deal. Is this a reflection of that kind of insider-outsider nexus? It is, but again, I, I wonder whether that's more of a national... If that's a sort of system that applies in politics or, or, or elsewhere. Um, but certainly in Melbourne, um, you know, the, the, you're right to call that out. There, are, But I guess it's people they think that they can trust. They don't want outsiders coming into AFL House. It's a very lumpy rug in there. They don't want people too many people peering underneath. And that's why one of, the, one of the issues they have when it comes to succession is more often than not that they will choose someone from within who understands where the bodies are buried, who understands why they were buried or who buried them. And again, I can understand why they would do that. But I think to get true reform, they need to, to look outside that boys club network um, take the risk and have a refresh. Well, let's talk a little bit about what happens when you get on the wrong side of this little cabal. Um, Dean Bailey, who's remembered with some affection here in Adelaide, uh, former Melbourne coach, the late Dean Bailey. What happened... To just tell us a bit about the story of Dean Bailey and how he was, well, hung out to dry, so to speak, at the time of the tanking affair. So, again, here's an outcome that the AFL came up with so that they effectively didn't have to say that Melbourne had tanked, which is deliberately losing games, which is a crime. If the AFL had have determined, as their own integrity investigation had, that uh, nine members of the Melbourne Football Club football staff had confessed to a conspiracy to lose games, that they, they were, they were, towards the back end of 2009, the club was not doing its best to win. They wanted to lose... So if they won less than five games, they would get priority picks, which they did. Mind you, they got Tom Scully and yeah, Jack Trengove out of that. Yeah. And Dustin Martin was sitting at pick three. They could have had him all along, but Richmond took him. So it doesn't really pay anyway. But it certainly wasn't worth it, was it? But the outcome that the AFL came up with through tanking was to come up with an alternative punishment for the club, and that was that Dean Bailey and Chris Connolly, the football a boss would take a lesser penalty. Um, now, Dean Bailey says that he was threatened to take a 16-week penalty. Um, 
beyond that, he actually says that he believed, he told people that he believed that the cause of his cancer, which killed him 13 months after the AFL integrity investigation, was related to the stress that he, he, he was put under. And I, I, I sort of focus on that story towards at the end of the book because too often there is a, a human toll to this kind of behaviour that goes unchecked at the AFL and James Heard is one of them. Now he's a more polarising figure. Not everyone believes that James Heard um, was unfairly targeted and, you know, Essen is such a complex story. We, we could talk about that for another five hours but ultimately, as far as I'm concerned, he was the guy that the AFL identified as someone who needed to go down to be yeah. the face of that scandal um, when, at its core, the people who needed to go down when it's a, when it's a doping investigation are the athletes who've actually doped. Um, if you want to look beyond that, why wasn't the Essendon Board of Directors punished? They are ultimately responsible for the club. The answer to me is because it was convenient for the AFL, being judge, jury, executioner, to come up with that that outcome. And this is the pattern that plays yeah. out right through integrity investigations. And Bill Kelty, the, the commissioner, AFL commissioner, says to me in the book that he actually warned the commission over and over again that they needed a separation of powers here to be able to properly police these issues. Because, as I said, the commercial interest always yeah. won out. Well, you've already illustrated why tanking matters. It's not just that it's antithetical to the spirit of sport. There's major commercial interests via gambling in the outcome of games. If you're tanking it, you're drawing your own product into question. Well, and, so, on, and on that, yeah. the Victorian Casino Regulator, which polices AFL betting, also police Crown Casino in Melbourne. Now, Crown Casino in Melbourne got away with what it did for 20 years as a result of the failures of that, that watchdog. It was more of a lapdog than a watchdog. And the same applied here. It was a, an independent regulator that in New South Wales that blew the whistle on what was happening at Crown Casino. And I say that that authority was asleep at the wheel on Melbourne tanking as well. And the Talia's brother final that you mentioned because people were betting on that match. And if there are allegations of um, misconduct, they need to be properly investigated. Yeah, and there's, there's that matter. And there's also what you document in multiple cases, which is the AFL gets a whiff that there's some, a problem on the way and their initial instinct of the boys' club is how do we protect our mates? And so there are certain people who are protected and there are certain people who they're happy to throw out, you know, and it's uncannily similar to some of the stories we get about behaviour in the Australian Defence Force and certain mm. police forces. It's, you know, Mr Trigg is protected in one case, it's, it's, or it certainly feels that way, whereas there are others who are happy to, you know, let go. It feels like, above all, we can't let our mates cop any flack for this. And um, did you find, as a media practitioner, it difficult to get this story up at the time? Were you aware of it and just no-one wanted to talk about it? Or was it more that actually there was a more intimidatory and darker side to Which it? Which story was that? Well, in, in this case, I'm talking particularly about the Adelaide uh, Tippett case. Yeah. But it could be any one of the ones we've spoken about. Some st stories we sort of hear about, you were aware of them if you follow Australian football, but they never seem to go anywhere. Do you, and I know you were at the coalface for a long time. Why do stories just drop off? Well, as I say, the, the great disappointment for me as a journalist is to see, and it took me a while to, to realise this, that, that more off the, the AFL understand how to manipulate the media as, as good as anyone I've ever seen in, in this country. Um, the information is king when you're a journalist, so if you can 
be provided with some information that is uh, helpful to the AFL's narrative that they're trying to sell, um, if that can fall into the lap of a journalist, you can see why you would take that information. Um, I probably would have hmm. at some stage, not that they were ever providing me any information, but I'll go back to Essendon. The leaks around about April 2013 d designed to frame up James Heard as the real villain in this. Um, okay. Um, it's very strategic. Their, 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 their strategic capabilities at the AFL are phenomenal. Um, moreover, in the Essendon thing, to be able to get into the room as in a joint investigation with the Australian Sports Anti-Doping Authority was, was incredible. The problem that they had there is they outsmarted themselves and it blew up in their face and the Essendon drug saga became a runaway five-year train wreck. Whereas the NRL, um, a far less sophisticated outfit, sat back and actually um, Cronulla, the players there received a five-week penalty and the club actually recovered to win a premiership soon after. Um, so I, that just goes to show that often the AFL occasionally can outsmart itself. Well, your description of the Essendon drug saga is lengthy in the book and, and quite extraordinary. And the human cost that people paid for this is not in any way glossed over. The, the treatment that James Hurd and his family received and it, it struck me particularly that this is a very Australian phenomenon about the way we construct our men and the way we construct these kind of male role models. For most of his life, James Heard had been the sort of the golden boy of sort of straight white male sort of ascendancy, hadn't he? You know, son of a club legend, extra gifted by the gods, a beautiful, fluid player, um, had never seemed to ever hit a problem. You'd think he'd be one of the prime candidates to be a member of the boys' club or at least to sit on the inside. But when the time came, he was still on the outer, wasn't he? And when they turned, they turned pretty viciously. And, you know, w was he emotionally and uh, equipped to deal with the, what it was like when, the, when suddenly the vagaries of fortune turn on you like that? It was pretty hard, wasn't it? Yeah, look... Um he probably would have been a member of the boys' club. But, uh, look, he has to take huge responsibility for the debacle that was at Essendon. I don't absolve James Heard at all of what happened. Um, and as Andrew Dimitri would often say, I'll tell you what I never did, I never injected anyone. And he was right about that. Mm. But what he did do, Andrew Dimitri and the AFL, was put in play this um, strategy to try and spare the players' suspension which again was the commercial interest of the game. It was an Armageddon scenario that the AFL was faced with. If Essendon's wiped out for two years, what does that mean for our TV money? What does it mean for our broadcast deals and our commercial partnerships? So they went down this road of, of this uh, alternative outcome, get Essendon out of the finals, find them, suspend the coaches. That was fine, but in the end they got double jeopardy because yeah. Ben McDevitt at Asada said, well, that's all very well and good, but I'm going to charge the players as well. And, in the end, just about everyone went down. Uh, it wasn't just James Heard. We saw Mark Bomber-Thompson have his own issues with drugs. Well, and on the uh, other side, uh, within the boys' club, David Evans, of course, was a, 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 from Essendon Football Club, uh, collapsed in, in camera, so to speak, in hearings. So the pressure was clearly very high. Yeah. Um, maybe just move sideways and with that mention of it. Um, let's just talk about this particular firm, which is Spotless Services. Spotless being a firm which uh, uh, is very much part of this book. Spotless is a firm which provides a range of services uh, or tend, supposedly tended for a range of services at various AFL stadia. Um, who's the chair of um, Spotless? 
Uh, well, Ron Evans here, he was Managing Director of, of Spotless Catering. He was the AFL chairman at the same time. Spotless had the contracts for most of the VFL, AFL grounds. Um, a classic conflict of interest, which... How did he get them? Did he, was there a laborious pro tendering process for it? <laughs> Or did, did, uh, did Spotless just sort of seem to wander into, um, say, Dockland Stadium? They would always say, as the AFL always does, when there's a conflict of interest, the person leaves the room. Hmm. But the optics of that, to borrow a phrase of the AFL, stank. Yeah. Um, that you'd have the chairman of the AFL having contracts at AFL stadiums. But um, I remember as a young journalist coming through at that stage, they're like, there's nothing to see there. Conflicts of interest are, are declared, but they're not always declared. Of course, one of the things that I uncovered in the book, was, which I had no idea about, I never saw reported anywhere, was that when the AFL was investigating the West Coast Eagles for the illicit drugs crisis, you'll remember the footage of Ben Cousins with the shirt off, it was a, it was a massive, sad story. It turned out that Demetriou and the chairman of the West Coast Eagles, Dalton Gooding, were actually business partners in, yeah. a, in a false teeth uh, import company. Now, again, they would say it's irrelevant, yeah. had no bearing on our investigation, but as I say is, we'll just disclose it. Yeah. Well, but they don't have to disclose anything. Well, let's return to Ron Evans. When I mean, Ron was an enormously significant figure at all levels of AFL, but he also happened to be the managing director of this particular firm, the aforementioned David Evans, who was in charge of Essendon at the time, happens to be Ron's son. Mm. Um, who's the chair of the board of Spotless Services at roughly this time? Uh, a gentleman by the name of Blythe, by any chance? Yeah, so um, when Ron, Evan, Ron Evans' business partner was Brian Blythe, yeah, that's right. And, uh, and who's Brian Blythe's daughter? Uh, oh, well, I, I know what you're getting at here. It's uh, um, that Gillan McLaughlin married into that family. Th those sort of connections are, um, are, are everywhere. That's sort of what I was getting at earlier about the football, uh, yeah, the school you went to and so on. It's not just about a boys' club. It's also about family connections. And um, what I find extraordinary is that so much of this was news to me. Yeah, you th and maybe I, if I'd been a bit more diligent as a citizen of football, so to speak, I could have found out for myself. Mm. But I didn't. I didn't know that this whole spotless saga was actually involved sort of people deeply interconnected. Almost everybody in the room for certain negotiations had inside information. It's inside, you know, dealing, which is just a, an extraordinary revelation. Uh, when you talk about this in your insider media football circles, is there a sense of outrage or people just sort of shrug their shoulders and say, that's footy, that's the way the world works? Sadly, that's the, the view that um, most of the senior reporters, I find, uh, don't, aren't particularly interested in the governance of the AFL, which I find interesting, um, but... You can also understand why, if you have that one little blind spot, that's okay, because there's 18 clubs, there's 850 players. But to me, that's not what journalism's all about, and I think that there's been so many disgraceful episodes in terms of um, behaviours and integrity investigations at AFL House that, that warranted something like this book. Um, it's a boys' club, and it's very much about boys, but the AFL is changing, um, and there are more women at AFL House than there ever have been before, more women in positions of power. Women are increasingly knocking down the walls in the media. 
I also note it, it can't be coincidence that perhaps the three most influential and certainly most successful, at least of the Victorian clubs in recent years, all have female presidents. Kate Roffey, mm. um, Peggy O'Neill at Richmond, um, uh, Kylie Watson-Wheeler at the Western Bulldogs, both the grand final teams last year. Um, is part of the solution to this boys' club just stopping it being a boys' club? Or are we just going to see it becoming a club? Is the elitism here a problem of gender or is it something else? Um, oh, it's definitely... Gender's been a huge problem for the AFL, but I think this is more a case of the world changing around the AFL than the AFL choosing to change itself. Uh, Peggy O'Neill's a great example you bring up, who uh, became chair of Richmond Football Club or president, which had been a basket case, really, for, for 37 years. Trust me, I know, as a Richmond supporter. But I think that what... Peggy O'Neill was able to do was, she's a governance expert for a start, which yes. is pretty handy if you're yeah. on a board of governance, unlike some of the uh, club presidents that we have who are more game show hosts, etc. But um, <laughs> she was able to do a number of things at Richmond, lowering the temperature, having yeah. proper processes, and I think her term's coming to an end at Richmond at the end of this year, that she is the exact person that should be running the AFL commission. Because I can guarantee that a lot of these behaviours that have taken place at AFL House wouldn't have happened if someone like that was in charge. So, as I said at the start, the Commission needs to reassert its authority, set the tone. It's a board of directors that needs proper governance and yeah. someone like that would be the perfect person. And, and when you talk about behaviours, are you including some of those more horrific sections of the book where you talk about the extraordinary antediluvian sexism, mm. the sexual um, harassment of female staff, the kind of uh, behaviour that we've seen elsewhere in society? That's something that clearly needs redress. And uh, as I understand it, there has been some form, but it is quite shocking to see just what a boys' club the boys' club is. Yeah, I think... I think that's right, and uh, they're looking for two commissioners at the moment, the AFL, so uh, she would be my first choice. And as you say, the, the Western Bulldogs... Uh, well, Peter Gordon was the president when they won it in 2016, but they now have Kylie Watson-Wheeler in charge and Kate Roffey was at Melbourne, so there's definitely a, um, a change taking place, but I'd like to see that more at AFL House and at, at Clubland, which seem to be taking the lead in that area. Well, my club, Western Bulldogs, has at board level half women, half men. We should surely be aiming for that at an AFL commission purely in order just to civilise the place by, by the reading of your book. Um, we're, we're getting close to um, the end. We're not there yet, obviously, but there's a, I'm kind of keen to culminate this by just seeing to what extent this book's actually not just about AFL and not just about sport, but is in many ways a portrait of um, Australia at the moment. And in many ways, the AFL that you describe in the AFL house is a microcosm of the country at large. It feels like so many of these things that we've been discussing for the last 40 minutes feel like a description of what goes on in Canberra in Parliament House. Mm. Quite, um, here, in, you, you wouldn't be familiar, Michael, but at North Terrace, we've had some certain mm. Christmas parties and other events that would bring tears to the eyes and um, insider behaviour, the rotting of allowances and so on. Um, to what extent do you feel like this is something specific to the AFL? Or to what extent, as you were writing it, did you think, gee, you know what, I'm actually talking about a, a broader problem with Australia. We're too much of an insider club. It's too hard to break in and they, and they just police themselves. Look, I'm not going to pretend I know the answer to that. I, I know a lot about the AFL because I've covered it for 20 years. Um, so I feel as though I'm 
in a position to, to, to talk about yeah. the way that the AFL conducts itself. Obviously, like everyone else, I follow general politics and, 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 and life, but I'm not sure. I think maybe that the certain aspects of the way that the AFL is governed makes it a little bit more easier to have one of these boys clubs. That One of the things with government, for example, is you are at the mercy of the electorate every three to four years. You can be booted out. This mob, yeah. you can't boot them out. They anoint their own successes. They choose the people that they want to choose, as I mentioned, with the, lump, the lumpy rug, and they really are able to maintain this, as I've said, for almost three decades now because that's the way the system is designed. Um, so not saying that we need elections, but to your answer, at least yeah. if the electorate feel like a government's lost its right to govern, they will be booted out. It's, it's more the idea that actually a cabal of people in power mm. can find ways to avoid scrutiny uh, or that we as um, sort of stakeholders feel we've got no recourse here, which is why I was making that earlier sort of slightly cheap crack about an, an ICAC, is that, you know, mm. at a certain point an independent commission is required and there's no almost no scrutiny whatsoever. We barely even get to read the auditor's report and that was why I started to think, oh, this isn't just about the AFL, this is about us. This is actually about we've, we've found ourselves in a, uh, this sort of club of um, well, privileged boys handballing power to each Sports other. Sports Integrity Australia, which is a national body probably most of you have never heard of, is um, actually pushing for this, uh, but it's going to require the support of governments, and, and that's a big blind spot for governments in, in sport. But they're saying that they should have the right to police things like the Essendon saga or the Melbourne tanking saga, take it away from the AFL and have a national body, if it's a significant enough uh, scandal uh, investigation to to take it away from the AFL, but that would require the AFL agreeing to that, and it would require governments to be strong enough to enforce it, which I can't see happening. Well, sometimes if you want change, you've got to wrest power from the powerful. They're not going to give it to you. Uh, anyway, it just it feels like the, the book's about almost. I would caution you about it feeling merely like a book about football. It's a book about us. It's kind of uh, remarkable and certainly opened my eyes. If you'd like to ask a question at any point, feel free, please, to move towards the microphone here in the centre aisle. Just while we, while we get ready for our questions, I just wouldn't ask, mind asking you one last one, Michael. What personal price have you paid, either professionally or otherwise, here? Um, did you ever get warned off? Did people tell you or did to sort of back off? Or we, have you been professionally sort of damaged by daring to sort of step outside the rules? Uh, it's, again, it's one of those questions I'm sort of reluctant to, to go into because nothing worse than a whinging journalist. Um, but Consider licence to whinge. They, they certainly go out of their way to make it difficult for people who rock the boat or shine a light into dark corners, take a peek under that rug. Um, but that comes with the territory. You know, as a, as a journo, you've got to be pretty thick-skinned. There was, in 2013, Dimitri did take my media accreditation off me, which made it hard to get into the football. Yeah. Although I had just had to pay like everyone else. But, um, but that was petty. And that was typical of, of that sort of thug mentality that they had. But um, I think most journalists are 
Yeah, it's one of I the first rules. I, I work in the theatre. One of the first rules is no matter how much you hate the critics, you never take away their opening night tickets. That only makes life worse for you. Um, I'm just, it's just, again, it's a broader theme, isn't it, an age of Bernard Colliery and so much. I'm, I'm not saying necessarily that you're in any way a whistleblower. I appreciate that you're doing this from the position of being an investigative journalist. But nonetheless, we don't reward people who dare to tell the truth, do we? It's no. Sort of... What it probably more is is they're good at white anting. Right. So they'll brief, they'll try and discredit you. Um, but in the end, the facts are the facts. And as I say to young reporters, if you've got a story, get a document, get someone on the record. Um, and this book is not just what I say, but it's based on documents um, and first-hand accounts. Um, and if you do the work like that, there's really not a lot they can say. Yeah, well, credit to you, other and than you credit it. to you, your publishers and your editors, because it's wonderful to read a book which is properly footnoted and properly documented. It's uh, uh, assiduously done. Please, madam. Yeah. Um, thank you for your um, um, enlightening chat. Is uh, the things you talk about are they the reasons why I believe the AFL is the only code in Australia to not have a man, player, past or present, identify as gay and come out? Hmm. Are these contributing factors because they're not allowed in the boys' club? Interesting. Yeah, I've I've had that put to me before, and again, I'm not going to profess to know the answer, but you would say that it, it's um, it's interesting that. The player hasn't, at this stage, done that. Uh, but I, I don't know whether it's as a, as a result of the environment. But I think, um, I think it's only a matter of time till that happens. And um, but I, I don't think you could blame the question without notice. I don't think I'm going to blame the AFL for the fact that a player hasn't come out as gay. Um. It is nonetheless an extraordinary um, set of circumstances, isn't it, that an organisation, particularly under Mr Demetrio's reign, liked to um, wave its multicoloured flag, so to speak, and was very keen to be seen on every correct side of every socially progressive issue. Nonetheless, we know, statistically, we know that there are footballers all through the clubs who would probably identify with gay if they felt supported to do so, and yet we still have no-one who's prepared to be that. But, or maybe the conversation has moved on. Is it something that's spoken about in insider circles? Uh, has AFLW look, changed honest, this issue? I don't think it's a big deal these days, is Good. it? I mean, I, I think it'll, it'll, it'll happen, and uh, maybe 10 years ago, you know, something that Eddie Maguire would have tried to sell on the footy show and it's this big deal, but I don't think people these days... It's yeah. going to be the... Well, you're right. But it is, it is interesting it hasn't happened. Well, and, and there are still football clubs all over the country where, you know, it's considered hilarious to sort of send up sort of uh, uh, queer identity and um, so on, uh, sort of faux drag and so on. There are certain very old-fashioned and recherche sort of attitudes. Please. Um, continuing the gender issue, um, given what you've described about the boys' club culture, how do you see the AFLW being able to flourish in its own right and not be portrayed as a second-rated skilled game compared to the men's competition? Oh, thank you. That's one of mine. Thank you. <laughs> I actually think that it's by design that the AFLW is restricted at the moment uh, in the length of the season where it's placed in summer, it's not a summer game, it's a winter sport. For anyone who's ever played it, you don't really want to be pulling on the boots when there's a, a cricket pitch there. But I think that one of the 
key reasons that the AFLW has been kept to a amateur part-time sport with a restricted length of season is by design because the moment that they say let's play curtain raises or, or play it after the men's game and give the women a fully professional um, season is the moment that they open the floodgates to pay equity and they don't want to do that. They don't want to have to certainly at the moment have that conversation open up their purse strings. Um, the other thing that I'm a little bit bemused at with the AFLW, whilst I think it's fantastic that we've got women's football finally, is that women have been playing professional sport, be it cricket or, or foot, soccer, uh, these other Australian major sporting codes. The AFL was the last one to catch up. Um, and it, whilst it's been great that they've done it um, and they've been lauded for it, they, they did take their time. The other factor, Michael, is that, of course, at the, at, as things stand at the moment, gate takings, you know, the actual takings at the gate for, for crowds is, is not a level playing field either, is it? If we're going to fully professionalise, we're going to have to start presumably getting the stadiums that we ask women to play on up to scratch. Yeah. Yeah, um, if you don't charge at the gate and you don't charge for broadcast fees, it's another argument to not pay the, the players professionally. But I can tell you it's coming in the last round of pay talks, the... Uh, the, the, the union that represents the male players also represents the female players, which I think is flawed. I think the women need their own union. And during the last round of pay talks, some of the players actually went and got separate legal advice against the advice of their own union. So it's, a, it's definitely an issue simmering away in the background. Thanks for bringing that up, Michael, because it's just a point that we should make. The AFL Players Association and the AFL Coaches Association, which are also often presented as if they're unions representing the players and coaches, are completely funded by the AFL, aren't they? Yeah, they're not, they are, which is a bit like the CFMEU being funded by the building construction um, <laughs> industry. But uh, the, the AFLPA don't see this as an issue. But um, really, if you want to have a, a pure union, what they should say to their players is, like any other union, give us 1% of your wage which will fund our union going forward so we have that complete separation. Please, sir. Um, firstly, great book, Michael. I've really enjoyed it. Um, I'm curious to know whether you're familiar with the Andrew Jennings book, Foul, on the corruption in FIFA, and uh, if you read it, um, I just think the similarities between your book and that book and that book was so long ago, and we've seen some reform in FIFA. I'm wondering, do you think there is light at the end of the tunnel with such a big organisation like FIFA and, and, and the AFL potentially being able to reflect that executive group, like, on that, the failings of that world organisation? I mean, the AFL is a world organisation, as you put. But, yeah, I'm just curious whether you, you're familiar with that book and, yeah. and, the, and the tones that come across between yours and that book. Yeah, the only thing I'd say uh, about that is, is, you know, I'm not accusing the AFL of the same blatant corruption we saw in FIFA or the IOC, you know, where there was um, clear corruption in terms of, yeah. you know, under-the-table payments and that sort of stuff. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but... That same sense of arrogance and entitlement certainly pervades at AFL House that those major codes have. And really, the only way that reform can happen, in my view, would be in, from within. 
Um, one of the strengths they have, of course, is there is a big scandal in the papers Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, but the games roll around on the weekend and we all love the games and we, we get sidetracked and, as I said, maybe people don't think that sports integrity is as important as integrity elsewhere, but it's up to the clubs and the, and the presidents of the clubs to really push for reform. One of the problems there, of course, is that more often than not, the AFL choose who's running your club. Um, they can choose board directors. They have, uh, obviously, as you mentioned, that, that with the distribution of cash, they can make it very difficult for a club to, to say anything publicly or even privately. But I do get the feeling that there's a band of presidents, Peggy O'Neill, Andrew Pridham at Sydney Swans, who are pushing for an independent review. Once we get over this COVID situation, if we ever do, uh, I think change will come. Uh, please, next one. Thank you. Hey, Michael. You were talking before about the AFL being really big on PR and always first instinct to go to spin. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the AFL having their own journalism department within <laughs> afl.com.au and whether there's a conf conflict of interest within that and if that's replicated across other sports. Yeah, so that was one of the things the AFL did was create its own newspaper, if you like, AFL Media, um, which was free and you could go there. Um, now, I would always use it myself if I've got off a, a flight, I want to check the scores, I'll, I'll, I could check that, but I'm not going to go to AFL Media if I want to know what's happened in the Essendon drug saga or, or actually, and I think most members of the public are smart enough to know that AFL Media is not really the place you're going to go for genuine news, but um, the other aspect of that is I think they really set that up uh, because they, at one stage they were looking at, with broadcast rights, could they actually come up with a model down the track where they, act, they produce and film all the games themselves and sell that directly to you and me so we could buy a subscription off the AFL, then they don't have to deal with third parties. Um, that may happen down the track with the way that the digital world's going and streaming, but um, to answer your question, I, I don't know anyone who would go to AFL Media if they wanted a, a serious analysis of a, an issue uh, relating to a, the conduct at AFL House. And yet they're the biggest employers of football journalists now, aren't they, the AFL themselves? Oh, well, they actually, since COVID, the AFL would... As I said, the AFL had 795 staff the day before COVID hit, and uh, they, they've wiped off um, over 200 of those, which is very sad um, for those people. But I think the size of the bureaucracy had gotten out of control. Uh, thank you. Okay, um, now I understand why uh, Fremantle was sent down to Geelong in 2013 <laughs> and Ross Lyon rested all those players. Um, my question is maybe on uh, just prior to the COVID seasons, um, were AFL uh, um, staff getting bonuses from, uh, I suppose, you know, game revenue, uh, um, uh, big, large attendances, that sort of thing? Yeah, bonuses are, were a big part of the, the way the AFL executive... The average salary of an AFL executive before COVID was $875,000. And there were 11 or 12 of them. So... It's not a bad job if you can get it. I know, Tom, you probably earn more than that, but most of us uh, less so. Um, but again, they're able to, to pay themselves as they see fit. And just coming up to round one this year, this is the first time 
all the Victorian clubs are playing each other and all the interstate clubs are playing each other. That just, uh, yeah, just it, uh, on observation. In the practice matches, yeah. I don't take practice matches. No, no, oh, this in is round, round one, one, round one of the... Yeah. Right, okay. Um, don't get me started on the integrity of the fixture. Uh, yes, we have actually run out of time. We can't interrogate the fixture, is it? Um, Michael's book is The Boys Club. He'll be signing copies over at the table. Um, by all means, feel free to come over and have a further chat with him before he gets on a plane. Uh, thank you for your time, Michael. I'm sure you found it as entertaining as we have found thank it you. enlightening. Thank you. Yes.